so if you're joining us for the first time, we're in 2 Timothy. We're still in chapter 1, so, you know, you didn't miss too much. Um, and as we go through, we're going we're to finish out chapter 1 today of 2 Timothy. But this is what you missed so far if you're joining us. Um, the Apostle Paul, this is the last letter he writes before he's executed. And the Apostle Paul is writing to his, his dear son in the faith, his beloved son. It's not his physical son, it's his spiritual son named Timothy. And Timothy is a pastor, elder, and overseer in the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Ephesus no longer exists, but you can go see the ruins. But it was in, it's in modern-day Turkey, kind of like along the coast, so he writes to Timothy, he wants to encourage him to endure to the end. Um, basically, Paul is passing the baton because he's getting ready to pass away and to go and meet the Lord. And he's saying, Timothy, the next generation needs to pick up the baton and they need to run with it. And they need to endure to the end the same way that I endured to the end. And so that's his encouragement for Timothy as he writes this letter. And so he says, Timothy, I know you have genuine faith. I know your mom. I know your grandmom. I know the rich spiritual heritage on which you stand. And so in light of those things, he said, I encourage you to fan the gift of the Holy Spirit into flame, that you would fan that ember into a bonfire so that you would have a huge impact in Ephesus, right? To, to quote a famous Christian, um, I'm not saying, fresh and to quote a quote, doesn't sound right, guys. To quote a quote, set yourself on fire and others will come to watch you burn, right? You set yourself on fire for Christ, Timothy, and people will be attracted to that. And so that's what Paul is encouraging him. And last week when we looked at Paul's encouragement, um, in that paragraph of 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul said four, he gave four commands, and we looked at the first two commands. And the first two commands that we touched on last week were, do not be ashamed Instead, join me in suffering for the gospel. And that was Paul's encouragement to Timothy. That first charge was, don't be ashamed of the gospel, Timothy, and don't be ashamed of me, Paul, who's in, the, who's in chains for the gospel. Instead, join me. What a ridiculous invitation, isn't it? Like shackles on his wrists, arms up. Timothy, come on, let's come hang out. Doesn't seem like a very good invitation, but that's the invitation that Paul gave. And so today, what we're going to look at in 2 Timothy chapter 1 is we're going to finish out those next two commands and look at a case study of a couple of guys, some who shipwrecked their faith and others who are applauded for their faith, okay? So I'm going to read this section in its entirety, um, beginning in verse 8 to the end of the chapter, and then we're going to begin with verse 13. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and he called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death with his death, who brought life with his resurrection, and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. 
then this is our new section. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Amen. So verse 13 says, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So there's two, the two phrases there that I want to highlight as we unpack this is pattern and sound words. And so what's Paul referring to when he talks about the pattern and the sound words? And this is actually a reference to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, this is what we read. That's 1 Timothy 6, 3, if you're taking notes because you want a five-below gift card. <laughs> if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's talking about these sound words. He, he's going to go on to say, you know, don't pay attention to them. Let them be accursed, these sorts of things. But... It's the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ that Paul is concerned with. The sound words. What are the sound words? So the sound words of Jesus, it does not refer to any specific one statement that Jesus made, but to the entirety of the gospel. And as you look at 1 Timothy by and large, not just the entirety of the gospel, but the teaching that flows from the gospel and the ethical implications for the way that we live that are extrapolated from the gospel as well. So when Paul's talking about sound words, he's talking about gospel, gospel-centered doctrine, and gospel-centered living that flows from those things. Does that make sense? See, Paul always says the true teaching walks towards godliness, whereas false teaching slouches towards sin. That's what 1 Timothy is about by and large. And so the idea is that accurate, true doctrine, doctrine is often recognized by the impact that it has on everyday living. Jesus put it this way, much more succinctly than me or Paul, you will know a tree by its fruit, right? That's how you're going to know when a false prophet is among you and they teach false things, their life is not going to be in accord with the holiness and the godliness that God requires. And so sound words. Then he says the pattern. Now, to the truth be told, nobody really knows what Paul's referring to with the pattern. You're going to have a bunch of different guys who say a bunch of different things. But there are some patterns in Paul's teaching, and probably the most famous pattern in Paul's teaching is what Jeff read this morning for our call to worship, and that's the pattern of faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love and its various synonyms is embedded in all of Paul's letters in one way or another. This was Paul's framework for the way that he thought about the gospel, the way he thought about our future grace, and the way he thought about the way things are, should be impacting us today. And so if you're new to that, the idea of faith, hope, and love in Paul's framework is that we have faith in Jesus, which is our foundation. And then we have hope for the future, 
which is the future grace we're going to receive. God gave us the deposit of the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing our future inheritance, that we have all these promises that we see in part and we see them as shadow, but one day we're going to experience the substance fully, that nothing can separate us, that's a hope. That, that there's no condemnation, that's a hope. That the accuser of the brethren will be silenced, that's a hope. All, that there's going to be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. All of those things are future hopes that are built on the bedrock cornerstone of Jesus and the gospel. And Paul's understanding with faith, hope, and love is that because of this faith, I have hope. And because I have hope, I can live today with love. Because I don't need to worry about what's going to be taken from me, I can love. I don't need to worry about what's going to cost me, I can love. I don't need to worry about getting even, I can love. Why? Because my hope isn't in right now, my hope is in a day yet to come. And so this is Paul's pattern of faith, hope, and love. Or to put another way, justification and glorification, which enhances your sanctification today. It's the foundation, the future, and the practical reality. Faith gives you hope. Hope empowers you to love. And Paul is essentially saying to Timothy, and he's going to flesh this out further in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that you know the pattern of my life, Timothy. You know the pattern of my words. You know the pattern of my deeds. You know the pattern of my heart. You know how I conduct myself. You have seen me through and through Follow the pattern that I have modeled to you. That's essentially what Paul is saying. So he's saying, follow the pattern and follow the sound words that you've heard from me. I know that was a long way of saying that, but I wanted to get it out there. And so to summarize here, false teaching, doctrine, and words that do not come from Jesus also will not be in accordance with godliness. But correct gospel understanding, faith and hope, will lead you to a life of love, which means loving God, loving others as God determines. And so the idea here is that if there's a love issue in your life, it's not actually a love issue. It's actually a hope issue or a faith issue. So for example, if you're having a hard time forgiving someone, it's not because you need to try harder to forgive someone. It's you need to spend more time being renewed in your mind, reflecting on the future grace you will receive and the past grace that you have received in the gospel. And so it's as we reflect on the faith and hope that we have in the gospel that enables me to forgive today because I've been forgiven. Does that make sense? And so when, we, when there's things of the day that we don't want to do, well, I don't want to set aside my own desires for the gospel. I don't want to do the luge, right? Whatever it might be. This is a Jerry Seinfeld reference. All right? Whatever it might be, I don't want to set aside my own desires, but the gospel compels you to set aside your own desires because God set aside his himself for us right? And so we have this foundation of faith that points to this future grace of hope, and that empowers me to love today. The point is when we properly understand the gospel, it changes the way we think. And when we have a change in the way we think, it changes the way we act, because that's actually how we are transformed. That's what the scriptures teach. You're transformed by the renewing of your mind, Colossians 3, 9 and 10 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
And so the idea is that we take what is true and it replaces the lies from the prince of lies that we've come to believe, and then that changes the way that we act. That's why Paul says, whatever is good, true, noble, honorable, trustworthy, think about such things. It's why Psalm 1 says that the man who is blessed is rooted in the Word of God, medita- meditating on it day and night, like a tr- and he's like a tree planted near streams of water that's leaves are always green and bears fruit in season. But the wicked is not so, right? The wicked is like chaff that the wind blows away, but the righteous will stand. So all of these things, it's the same idea cover to cover, that we are rooted in the Word of God, in the things of God, thinking about these things, meditating upon these things, his precepts, his rules, his law, his statutes, the fear of the Lord, and these things change the way we live today. It's faith and it's hope and it's love. And this is the pattern of Paul's life. You see, guys, so much rides on a healthy understanding of the gospel. And that's why Paul gives this fourth command in the paragraph, verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. By the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard the deposit. You know, so many of Paul's letters are about guarding the gospel. All of these epistles, these occasional letters that he writes when he's rebuking this, rebuking that, correcting this, correcting that, they go, it goes back to guarding the gospel because like we said last week, the last two weeks, the gospel is all we have. Either the gospel is true and every other invention of man to reconcile God to himself is a lie or the gospel is false. And if the gospel is true, then it matters and it needs to be protected. Faith alone matters because The gospel is not leverage to get someone power, right? No, it's faith alone. This is why the Reformation happened. It's grace alone. It's not earned by good deeds or going to church. That's the Scriptures, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3. The Scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation. Godliness is in accordance with the gospel. It's in accordance with the Scriptures. So Paul wants to protect these things because he wants the gospel to be untarnished. You guys are seeing this in the book of Galatians if you're going to the study with Dave and Ed before the service, that Paul says, if anybody preaches a gospel different than the one that I brought to you, let him be accursed. Let him be cursed because the gospel is what we have and it needs to be protected. By the way, guarding the gospel is one of the primary roles of what the New Testament calls overseers or elders or pastors, all interchangeable titles there. It's one of the primary roles of church leadership to guard the gospel. Because when we abandon sound doctrine, which is doctrine that accords with the gospel, then we wind up eventually shipwrecking our faith. And so the question, so Paul says, by the Holy Spirit, guard the gospel. And so the question is, how do you guard the gospel? Well, one, by the Holy Spirit. It's by the Holy Spirit. Jesus sent us his Holy Spirit as our helper. He said the Holy Spirit will remind us of all truth. He will lead us into truth. He will convict the world and he will convict us of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. He will give discernment. He will be our teacher okay? He will help us, that God will reveal himself to us as we pray and read the word by the power of his Holy Spirit, that Romans 8 says the Holy Spirit is interceding for us in accordance with the will of God. You see, he's guarding the gospel isn't just a mental exercise, it's also a spiritual exercise. It's by the Holy Spirit 
that we guard the gospel. But then there's some mental things that you need to do as well. One, you need to know the gospel. You need to know the gospel. Um, as Steve, one of our other um, pastor elders, has often said, the best way to identify a counterfeit is not by studying the counterfeit, but by studying what is true. Anybody see the story that came out this week with the pilot? This is a crazy story. So about a year ago, there was a pilot, uh, like flying one of those small planes, couple-seater plane, out in Midwest somewhere. And he uh, is a YouTuber, you know, influ- you know influencer guys. And he's a, he's a YouTuber, and he's streaming this whole thing. Well, all of a sudden, his plane starts malfunctioning. Now, he had on a GoPro camera on his on his helmet, and he had a GoPro camera on the dash of the thing, and all this kind of stuff. Well, he's going, he's fixing the who's my what's it, and he's adjusting the chrome Fenestrat, and all of these different things, you know, all the technical stuff that I know that you guys don't know about planes. And he's adjusting this stuff, and the plane's just dead in the air, and he's got he's to jump out, right? So he actually, I mean, his camera's on his head. He had to parachute out of his plane, and, to, and the whole thing is recorded, Anyway, the problem is this. Once you had Pete, once, if I watched it or Ryan watched it, we were like, oh yeah, this is that guy, definitely that plane was going down. But as soon as real pilots watched it, guess what they realized immediately? This whole thing is, is staged. This whole thing is a joke. There's no way this is real. This guy crashed a perfectly good airplane. Okay, And so now, a year later, after the people who actually know what they're doing watch all of these tapes, what they realized was this guy staged this to get hits on YouTube. He crashed the plane into what he hoped would be a deserted place, and then he packed up wreckage in backpacks and distributed it around different places, so hopefully he would never get caught. Well, guess what? He did get caught, and now he's facing 20 years in prison. Okay, And so the point is this. He just did it for, he's like, smash like now, guys, and hit subscribe. I'll be in prison. (laughs) Knowing the truth, as those pilots knew the truth and could watch that video, and they said, this is fake. When you know the gospel, then you're not going to be tricked by something that isn't the gospel because it's going to smell like a rotten egg as soon as someone cracks it open. Okay, so know the gospel, and you know the gospel by reading the Bible, by 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 experiencing the gospel, by preaching the gospel to yourself, by preaching the gospel to friends, by immersing yourself in the Word of God. Listen, there's so many books, podcasts, sermons, apps, YouTube videos out there, and every time you listen to them first, instead of listening to the Word first, you're assuming that this person is rooted in the gospel. But what if they're not? But you're assuming they are. Which is the third thing is guard your mind. Guard your mind. Don't let anything false into your head. There's so much false teaching out there. There's so many people teaching that the gospel is going to make you, is going to give you three things. It's going to give you health. It's going to give you wealth. It's going to give you prosperity instead of giving you trials, tribulation, and persecution. And if the gospel that you believe isn't true in every corner of the world, then it's not the gospel. Because you're not going to get health, wealth, and prosperity in Afghanistan if you believe in the gospel. You're going to get trial, tribulation, and persecution. Okay, there's so much false gospel out there. There's so much cheap grace gospel out there. Cheap grace says, do whatever you want. Like, Jesus is a cool uncle. It doesn't matter. Do whatever you want, and Jesus is going to forgive you anyway. 
Paul says this. He says, am I free to do whatever I want in Christ Jesus? Well, yeah, but not everything is good for you and not everything is beneficial. Like it is technically my right to jump off this stage and hope everybody's going to bum rush and catch me. But it wouldn't be wise because Ryan would let me fall. And and David can't get past Seth because he's got that boot on, okay? And so the point is this. The point is that cheap grace is a lie. But you know what? The opposite of that is also a lie, which is works-based salvation, right? The idea that I Jesus plus doing X and then I'm finally going to be. No. Beware of authors. Do your best to actually research things. Test everything against the Scriptures. Beware of social media. Beware of music. Do you realize most people in our culture, most of their theology is built more on lyrics of songs than it is the Word of God? Super dangerous, guys. Super dangerous. Many of the churches that produce the best-selling Christian music in our world, if you actually go to the churches and you listen to their sermons and you investigate their theological statements, man, they make some killer riffs, but their theology is garbage like denying the Trinity and basic things like that, okay? And so be careful what you put into your mind and proclaim the gospel. You know, when you're trying to learn, if you teach something, you retain 95%. So the more often you proclaim the gospel, the more you're going to have a mastery over the gospel yourself. Think about that. And so proclaim the gospel But when you abandon the gospel, when you forget that it's your hope, when you don't make that the foundation of your life anymore, then you shipwreck, you torpedo your life. And that's where we're going to end up here. Verse 15, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly, and he found me. Phagellus, Hermogenes, they were ashamed of Paul because, you know, there's all these super apostles over here. We learn about them in 2 Corinthians. Those guys are great. They're better speakers. They got better abs. You know, they're better all-around apostles. I don't know why I wouldn't follow that guy. I mean, Paul's always in prison. Like, that guy got beaten with a rod. He got shipwrecked. Obviously, God's mad at him, and so they were ashamed of Paul. See, Asia was the Roman province in which Ephesus was, and it's Timothy's current place of service. And so you have key people, important leaders, who could have supported Paul, but instead they didn't. Instead, they threw him under the bus, so to say, and they didn't stand by him. Speaking with hyperbole, Paul says, You know how all abandoned me. That's how it felt to Paul, that everybody abandoned him. Now, we don't know details about either of these people. But whatever happened, it obviously cut Paul to the heart because he's writing to Timothy, who is in Ephesus. And at the end of the the letter, Paul says to also read to the church. So um, imagine being called out by the apostle Paul in front of the whole church. Well, you know what to say to Templeton because that guy, I had to pick a name where nobody here is named Templeton. No visitors named Templeton? Good. He was ashamed. No wonder Paul says, Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. 
but join me in suffering. But then there's Onesiphorus, who's not ashamed of Paul. And this man is an example of faithfulness in contrast to Phagellus and Hermogenes, who abandoned Paul and who Paul calls them out. Well, what did he do? Well, look what it says here about what Onesiphorus did. It says, he refreshed Paul. He was not ashamed of his chains. And he arrived in Rome. He searched earnestly and he found him. So he refreshed Paul. He came to visit Paul in Rome. Now, I looked it up on Google Maps. From Ephesus to Rome, it's 1,600 miles by land. Or it's 1,300 miles if you go some combination of, of land and boats, okay? And so who knows how he came, but I know he didn't take a plane, all right? And even if he took a donkey, I don't know if you've ever ridden on a donkey for 1,600 miles. I rode on a camel in Qatar, and my butt hurt after five minutes, okay? 1,600 miles, not fun, and not only then, but what, who knows how long it took. But then once he gets there, he earnestly saw him. See, this isn't like you go to the county jail and you're like, I'm here to see Paul. No, this is Paul is on house arrest somewhere. He's unlisted. You can't text him. You just know he's in Rome. And so this guy comes and he starts, do you know where Paul is? Do you know where Paul is? Now, mind you, it's, a shame, it's shameful to be associated with Paul. And so even if people think they know where he's at. Maybe they don't even want to acknowledge this man, Onesiphorus, but it says he earnestly sought him out. He wasn't sure who he could ask because it was, this is during the time of Nero persecution. So they could say, well, why do you want to find him? Well, because I'm a Christian. And then you could wind up in prison. So think about what Onesiphorus went through to actually go and encourage Paul. Onesiphorus is a man who wasn't afraid to suffer for the gospel. And he would much rather be counted among Paul than a traitor to Jesus. Now, why would Onesiphorus behave the way that he did? Well, because he guarded the gospel in his heart and mind. He followed the sound words of Jesus, which had also passed to, were passed to him from Paul. He followed the pattern of Paul's teaching, faith, hope, and love. And he wasn't ashamed. He was willing to suffer. And Paul wants Timothy and us to be like Onesiphorus. Now, let me point something out. Look at verse 16 again. And then I'm going to jump to 18. He says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. And may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. You well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Now, why would Paul pray that the Lord would grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus? And why would Paul pray that God would be merciful to the man on the day of judgment? And why would Paul talk about his faithful service in the past tense and call upon Timothy to remember it? Are you putting the threads together? He's dead. That Onesiphorus, it seems, died on this journey. Whether he died in Rome or on the way home, we have no idea. Whether it was because of sickness or bandits or he was drowned in a storm, we don't know. But Onesiphorus, this trip to refresh Paul, cost Onesiphorus his life. Think about that. What kind of person would sacrifice their time, their money, and put themselves at risk in order to go and encourage Paul in prison? 
somebody defined by faith, somebody defined by hope, and somebody defined by love. And so here's Onesiphorus. From a robust understanding of the gospel and a deep well of intimacy with the Father, from a mind saturated with truth, from a place of unbreakable expectation and hope in the coming kingdom of his Lord, from a deep conviction that life is not all there is, but that there's something greater on the horizon, from a place of sacrifice because he knows that Jesus sacrificed for him, willing to leave his family for a man who wasn't even his own flesh and blood, from a place of passion for the gospel and the glory of God, from an earnest passion for God's church in Ephesus and all over the world, and from a heart of affection for Paul when every Everybody else had abandoned him, and nobody wanted to be associated with him. From that place, Onesiphorus took that step out of Ephesus to go to Rome, seeking, searching earnestly that he might encourage a prisoner, share in his suffering, and he died for it. A worthy sacrifice to lay before our king or foolishness? Paul would say, a worthy sacrifice. See, friends, would you rather at the end of your life be like Onesiphorus or Phagellus and Hermogenes? Because destination of your life isn't determined by, oh, that's where I'm going to go, but it's 10,000 directional, incremental, micro choices day by day by day, moment by moment, and they culminate to a location. Because certainly Phagellus didn't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to abandon Paul today. That's not where it begins. But Onesiphorus was a man of faith, of hope, of love, of sound doctrine, of the gospel, and his testimony made it into the word of God for us to be encouraged. We want to be more like this brother, right? And that's, by the way, this is one of the reasons why we go. This is one of the reasons why we go overseas. I know we do weird trips at Revolve, and not everybody always gets to go. Um, for example, this Thursday, Ryan and I are headed to Germany, and we're going to go visit between 6 and 10 Afghan house churches. Why? To encourage them. Why? It's what an Esophorus would do. They're discouraged. They're isolated. They're lonely, and they need encouragement. And so that's what we're doing. We're going to go to refresh their spirits. We're going to go to pray with them. We don't know what we're going to say. We don't know what we're going to do. We don't know where we're going to eat, right? <laughs> but it's going to be fine because this is the call to go and encourage the brothers, to go and cheer them on. And it's a privilege that we get to do these things. And you know what? At the end of September, beginning of October, we have an actual open invitation trip to go to Indonesia for two weeks. And that's going to be an opportunity for you to come, to come and encourage other believers, to labor alongside them, to pray with people who are on the front lines of pioneer fields and they're discouraged. And is it going to cost you your vacation days? Yes. And is it going to cost you money? Yes. And might you get a foot fungus that never disappears? Yes. Those things might happen. But you know what? It's a cost that we're willing to have in order to be defined by faith, hope, and love. Paul says, endure to the end, Timothy. That's the whole point of this book, this letter. Endure to the end. Endure to the end, but don't endure to the end as a curmudgeon who gets crankier, 
the older he gets. Endure to the end, being defined by faith, hope, and love until Jesus returns or he brings you home. And so we want to be more like Anesiphorus in this passage and not like Phagellus and Hermogenes. And so let's pray to that end. Father God, I, I ask that you would be just tugging on our hearts with whatever it is that you want us to see, whatever it is that you want us to remember, to know. Lord, um, I thank you for the testimony of Anesiphorus. I thank you, Lord, that even with this, with this man, we can learn from him. We can learn from his faith, from his hope, and from his love. God, I pray that we would be inspired by it. God, I do pray for the trip that Ryan and I are going on. I pray that everybody would remember to keep us in, our prayer, in their prayers as we go to encourage these Afghan brothers and sisters, these new believers, to, uh, to pray with them, to, to teach them, to disciple them, to encourage them, to be encouraged by them, Lord, and to let them know they are not alone, but we are there and the Lord is there to refresh their spirits. We pray these things in the matchless name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.